week four in the association. I'm your host, Alexander Jay, and with me today, Mr. Yuri Bilsich out of Perth. How are you, mate? Great, Alex. And yes, another week thus far, the NBA, and we're talking off air about this, like the last probably 10, 12, 13 games in. It just goes so quickly, right? It's so hard to keep up, hey? It just always happens that way. It's all of a sudden you get to midway point and you're just thinking to yourself, where did the first half of that season go? But there's been so much that has been, well, transpired over this last week as well. A few we talked about in the last couple of shows as well. One particular team out west that we've sort of really had a keen eye on that has really taken that next step into becoming a championship contender. And it's just really a logjam in a way in both conferences. Yeah, let me set up what today's show is going to be. It is a one-on-one with Yuri. Um, we had a full show, and then I just didn't really like it. So we're going to go off the dome, freestyle, through the East and Western Conference and give our gut subjective reactions for the first month of the season. Um, I had in my notes, I don't know if we were just talking about this off here, Yuri. I had in my notes, Boston, Milwaukee, the Kings, all on four or five win streaks. The Warriors end their five-game slide today. And, of course, they didn't. That game went to overtime just now. We were watching it. And recording a little bit late, Chet Holmgren hits a turnaround fairway three to send it to OT, and then Shea Gilders Alexander lights it up. He had 40, um, and a block on Steph in the last minute of overtime. So today's show, just we'll start at the top of the East, give our thoughts. You're a Milwaukee Bucks guy. Let's start with the Bucks. Um, they're currently third in the East, nine wins, four losses, and a week and a half ago, that looked a lot worse. Um, they've won four in a row. Uh, what have you seen watching the Bucks? And then I'll, I mean, you're the Bucks guy. What have you seen? Yeah, definitely, Alex. I think the slow start defensively as well, five and four after that pretty comprehensive loss to the Orlando Magic. I think it was what, 112 97. And there's a lot of issues in the way we've had we're playing defensively. I think after the Toronto loss, shall I say, a couple of weeks ago, Brooke Lopez and Adrian Griffin had a conversation just about how Brooke should play on the defensive end. And it's well documented that Brooke Lopez does play better as a in the drop coverage. The drop so coverage, yeah. Griffin, yeah, Griffin decided to go back to implementing that defensive tactic, and it's really paid off dividends in a way too. We've seen Brooke have monster shot blocking numbers, right? Even a couple of nights ago against Charlotte, watching that game, I think he had what seven block shots, and there was the Knicks game, which he had a season high and a league high eight block shots as well. And you got to play to players' strengths, and that's what Brooke does so well. And that's why teams over, well, barring Dallas today, the Mavericks completely just shot the lights out from three and just there was probably too many easy times in a way they were able to penetrate in the paint and get easy paint points. So that's still a work in progress in that aspect. But I think the biggest part as well too is there's starting to become hopefully a little bit more of that pick-and-roll synergy with Lillard and Giannis, which was so well written about once the Damian Lillard trade went down. And we've seen probably bits and spurts about it as well. I think like the first three games only had, I think it was an average of about eight or nine pick-and-rolls a game, which is very minimal too. And we saw a little bit of that today against Dallas. We saw a bit, bit of that on Friday against Charlotte. Just going away from that, Alex, too, the most pleasing part as well, that second quarter right against the Hornets last night too, which yeah. starters AJ Jackson has provided such a tremendous burst of energy, right? His all that hustle on both ends, especially at defensive end as well, him flying for loose balls and really being active with his feet and his hands as well, getting in the passing lanes. And that's been such a 
Barometer turned the way too for the second unit. Cameron Cameron Payne has also just been a really great acquisition too. And we saw, of course, what he did with the Phoenix Suns when en route to their 2021 path to the NBA Finals that season. And it's those different nuances, I think, with the second unit that provides just that extra zip in a way. And that's so critical, right, when the starters are really at times just offensively able to really generate a two, but then the second unit provides this different blend in the I agree way. with you. Like, I've got today's stats in front of me, and this might demonstrate perfectly. Um, Giannis, Andre Jackson Jr., Brooke Lopez, Damian Lillard, Malik Beasley starting. Um, Malik Beasley had a good game against Charlotte. I think he had 27 points, only seven today, zero points from Andre Jackson Jr. and 12 from Lopez. So the bulk of that starting scoring is from Giannis and Dame. And then off the bench, you've got 16 from Pat Connaughton in 35 minutes. Like he would start for a number of teams in the league. Bobby Portis, uh, 11 points. Cameron Payne, 11 points. AJ Green, as you said, eight points in limited minutes in a tight game against you know championship contenders. Um, that's looked really good the last. I mean, it's a five game win streak. That's looked great. Oh, definitely for sure, Alex. And the game against the Raptors on Wednesday night over there against your side, and yep. just the connection between Lillard and Beasley and watching Dame's presser afterwards, how he was talking about just finding Malik and getting him going. And that's the big part, especially such as a shooter in Malik Beasley's regard. And once he gets those couple of threes through the basket, then the hoop starts to feel like an ocean. And that's exactly what he was able to get into the flow. And that's such a big part. Points if, game against the Raps, yeah, 30 yeah. points. Yep, and seven threes, pretty sure, out of the top of my head too. So that's just so instrumental in a way too for what the Bucks do want to achieve as well. But just going to the defensive side of things as well, and that's sort of at times been a bit of a head-scratcher apart from Friday night against Charlotte, which for the first time this season, the team allowed under 100 points. And it's just those, you know very well too, Alex, especially with how the league has transpired in the last five, six years with the heavy emphasis on the three ball and a lot of the switching too. And that's where I think all 30 teams look to try and mitigate one another by implementing this tactic and trying to eliminate much of the three-point effectiveness. And if the Bucks are able to do that, which they have done very well over the last five seasons, then that's going to help moving forward. So I think just that's still, again, a work in progress in that part too. But Pretty happy with the start, right? Nine and four after, yeah, there's always going to be a bit of finessing and tinkering around, especially with Coach Adrian Griffin's new system too. But I think having Joe Prunty back at the Bucks as well has been a real sort of welcoming, seasoned, experienced coaching campaigner. And he's been around the block for such a long period of time, right, Alex? He was the former head coach of Great Britain's men's basketball team too. He was the lead assistant under Jason Kidd when also Brooklyn and, and in Milwaukee. So he's got such a wealth of coaching experience and it really helps Griffin now, especially when it comes down to those late game crunch situations like we saw today against the Mavericks, right? And just his wisdom in a way too, to really implement what he can bring to the table and that's really come in spades and you can't ask for much more than that at this stage. And yeah, it's back on the right ship too, but there's still a long way to go and Everyone knows that to really buy in collectively too, that's just got to be a real switch in defensive focus. And I think the first quarters have always been, so far this season through 13 games, have just been a little bit of a 
slow start in a way, and that can be eradicated sooner than later. Bucks are one of three teams in the East that, looking at the standings, go okay, they're obvious championship contenders, the Boston Celtics uh, and the Philadelphia 76ers. Right beneath them, the Indiana Pacers. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. We haven't spoken about how much Pacers basketball you've watched. I've watched a fair bit. They've had a couple good games against the Sixers. They lost, I think they split that. Um, they played the Bucks not long ago, if I'm not making that up. This middle, uh, this Indiana Pacers team, 7-4, and four, they're very, very fun to watch, and they, pay, they play at a breakneck pace between Tyrese Halliburton, uh, Miles Bridges down low still doing enough work. They, they've kind of decided to lean into this, let's, let's not play defense kind of attitude. Um, what are your thoughts on the Indiana Pacers? They're fourth in the East, and below them are Miami, New York, and Orlando. I mean, do you think they can stay as high as fourth? I think it's in the realms of possibility, Alex. So you look at last season when they were 23 and 18 in early January and they were well and truly in contention for a playoff spot. I think they were sixth or seventh at that point. And then Tyrese Halliburton's injury really just hit a down, downward spiral for the team. And unfortunately, they weren't able to recover. They end up finishing 35 and 47. But when you look at the roster this season and what they were able to do in the offseason, right, bring Bruce Brown across too from the Denver Nuggets and his it's pedigree of playing, thought, yeah. yeah, the pedigree playing through on route to the championship. You bring Obi Toppin, who who's had a slow start in a way too, and I think adjusting to a new system will take a bit of time in that aspect. And Benedict Matherin, who had a great rookie campaign too, and is just super, super consistent and super reliable in those crunch time situations. And they've just got a whole plethora of just young players, that's really all it is about the that's paces. That's exactly and- what it is because they've got eight guys that average in double digits and half of them, like, if you're not a sicko in the NBA, you don't know who they are. Like Jalen Smith, Obi Toppin, Aaron Naismith, these are guys that you can pluck from obscurity most of the time and averaging 10, 11, 12 points per game. Um, just on Benedict Matter, and he's looked a lot more confident this year. Um, I've got his shooting splits in front of me. They're not great, 32% from distance, 48 from the floor. Um a lot was said. It came out very strong at the start of last year, a um, couple months in. You go, eh, sleeper for rookie of the year. It's tailed off at the end of the year. He's looked a lot more comfortable with Tyrese Halliburton still out there averaging like 25 and 12 assists. Like just absolute. Watch Tyrese Halliburton. If you're listening to this and you don't watch the Pacers play, one, you're missing out. Two, just watch Tyrese Halliburton play one of these games. He doesn't always go to the rim. He doesn't always jack it up. I think he shoots 43% from distance. Like He can make them. But he can find Miles Turner, Buddy Heal, Bruce Brown cutting. It's they're a joy to watch. Now they don't play much defense, and I'm a I'm a defense guy. But let's not get that mixed up. Um, I kind of agree with you. I don't know if they're going to stay as high as fourth, but I think they can be up there. I had the over at the start of the season. Um, I bet heavily on the over. The teams below them, and you can pick one of these as we move to our next segue. The Miami Heat. Um, lost today against the Bulls, but they were on a nice seven-game win streak. The New York Knicks, you can never really pick them. Uh, they're up and down. The Orlando Magic, they're a good team, but they don't have any shooting. The Cleveland Cavaliers, I don't trust them. The Brooklyn Nets, not good. The Atlanta Hawks should be better than 10th. I mean, who's going to come up and surpass Indiana? Yeah, it's a very good question, Alex. And feels though probably be the Knicks in the way or Miami, just the way the two teams are constructed as well, considering the amount of playoff experience both teams have had in the last three seasons. The Knicks as well after that disappointing 21-22 campaign, which yielded just 37 wins, and it was just a real, not this 
this synergy in a way, but they could just never really get clicking that campaign. And we saw last season as well, just having another potent offensive scorer really helped alleviate the pressure of Julius Randle. And everyone well knows about Randle's struggles in the playoffs and at times during that regular season, which he really looked a complete shell. We've seen that through the first nine, ten games of this season with Randall where his shooting numbers were only about 35% at yeah, one point. Yeah, they really about, started to come good, yeah. Yeah, come up. And they're like, I think it was averaging like 13.7 points per game, which yeah, it was at that stage was by far career-low numbers. But he's managed to elevate that thing up to about 19. I was looking last time. I think it was like 19 points, like 10.3 rebounds or something, 4.9 assists in about since 34 and a half minutes average of playing time. So he's got that up and running too. And that's remind me as well that after losing to the Bulls today and that, having that seven-game winning streak, they've really changed a lot of the tinkerings within their lineup and they've really entrusted, as we know, Jaime Jaquez Jr. in crunch time minutes down the stretch and really have given him this mantle of responsibility, even though he's a rookie, but he plays well beyond his years and that's the real trust that Eric Spolstra has in the younger guys. And I think as well putting Haywood Highsmith in the starting lineup ahead of Kevin Love. And we're still seeing Love play substantial minutes off the bench, but just having that extra wing athletic defender on the perimeter as well who can switch onto point guards and shooting guards and small forwards and really make life difficult for them. So they've got that adjustment correct too, and it's really paying off at this stage. And Bam Adebayo as well. You very well know too, Alex. Yes. Uh, Bam Adebayo, I don't have the stats in front of me. I should have... uh prepped and got Miami up. He should be getting fringe MVP discussion. He has been that good for Miami. Now, you look at a box score on most nights and Jimmy will either have 16 or 36. Like, there's no really in-between there. But Bam's been so consistent both defensively as a presence, telling blocks and just shutting down possessions on the inside. But also his scoring is a lot better than it was uh, 18 months ago. Um I never really believed in Bam Adebayo until last year's playoffs, and I kind of saw, all right, this is the improvement, this is the path, this is the the rail. I don't even know what I'm trying to say at this point. He's really good, and I just wish more people would share that, okay, Jimmy's getting older, he was the guy. Jimmy might not be the guy come playoffs in April. It might be Bam. Um, just on the Knicks, uh, Mitchell Robinson averaging like six offensive rebounds a game. It's just unreal. Just I wanted to highlight that before. We can move on to a team of your choosing, Yuri. But uh... yeah, definitely agree, Alex, with Mitch Robinson. I think at one point he was averaging like five point eight offensive rebounds per game. You think of Steve Adam, Stephen Adams last season for the Memphis Grizzlies. He averaged, I think, it was like a league high five point one offensive rebounds, which is just nuts to even think about it. Right, just crashing the glass at a relentless rate and. It's so so similar to like a Ben Wallace, right? Ben Wallace used to grab like four and a half offensive rebounds per game in a, a smaller, more nimble season. Ben Wallace, yeah. yeah, and yeah, it's more smaller, more nimble, and just it's absolutely incredible just to see because that's why I think Thibodeau's teams have been based on since he took over or became a head coach for the Chicago Bulls prior to the 2010-11 season. Alex is a real emphasis on crashing the glass and really being a high prowess rebounding team and. That's what the Knicks have been doing once more this season. I think they're second in rebounding this season, second or third with about they are, 47 and a half. You, do you think that's a function yep. of them being the second worst shooting team in the league? So they're second oh. last in two-pointers made. Yeah, definitely. And that's where the correlation of really trying to crash the glass 
comes into play because I think unlike other teams who do go small ball, Tibbs is always stuck to having a big front court anyway with the power forward and centre. And he has spoken about it over the last couple of years about being more adaptable in a way and evolutionising to the way the game's been played in terms of taking more three-pointers. And Tibbs' teams with the Chicago Bulls and the Minnesota Timberwolves always ranked bottom five for three-point attempts. But the last, I'd say, two, three seasons with the Knicks, they've been like 10th or 12th in three-point attempts. So they've really upped up up the ante in terms of their attempts from downtown. And I think that's where he sees if they're able to generate quick shots, then that's cool because normally Tibbs' offensive system is pretty elementary in the way too. There's no real predicated focus on the offense. It's more on the defense because everyone well well knows about him barking his lungs out on the sidelines and oh. just giving instructions. Yeah. It's, I think there was a segment on the jump about five years ago, Alex, and I think it was Paul Pierce out of the top of my head was saying, oh, who, which coach, uh, Doc Rivers or Tom Thibodeau, would make a good cop? <laughs> I shouldn't have yeah. had a mouthful of water. I was about to spit that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, if you really had to force me, it's Tibbs, but that's a very funny image. Oh, yeah, I, I could just imagine him doing that in a way too. But, yeah, I think the Knicks after – They've also had slow starts to the last three seasons and they're back on course now. Beat the Hornets for the second time in the last week, essentially. And they've got a clicking at this stage. I think they're only averaging, like, conceding only about 104.6 points per game or something like that. It's definitely under 105 the last time I checked. So they've really got that defensive mechanism in place too. But Jalen Brunson, we spoke about on this show many times, Alex, as well. And now is the real difference changer from last season for Knicks having that go-to guy in late-game situations to hit big buckets and not leave it so much on Randall, right? Because it's essentially now Jalen Brunson's team, and he's the one that can really lift the Knicks and really lift them out of a hole of 10, 15-point deficit. And he did that against our Bucks only a couple of weeks ago, right, that Friday night over in Milwaukee in the first in-season tournament game for both teams, which he scored 45 points and just hit an array of absurd shots late in the game. So that's the great part, I think, as well for the Knicks in terms of having that point guard, which they haven't really had over the last two decades in no. a way too, to really go down to down the stretch as well. You never really thought, well, Charlie Ward was never a crunch time guy. Anyway, he just hit timely threes. And Raymond Felton was a very solid role play too. And he could also hit timely threes. But just having a point guard who can facilitate well, but also potently score well, that's the first time I can think of that the Knicks have had that. So before we move uh, down to the doldrums of the Eastern Conference, um, just quickly, Boston and Philly, they're at one and two. Uh, Boston, uh, 10 and two win-loss record. They're on a nice five-game win streak. Philly had, I think it was an eight-game win streak, get snapped by the Pacers. Um, they're nine and three currently. Joel Embiid leads the league in scoring 31.9 points a game. He pulls down 11 rebounds, six assists, almost two blocks at one point in the last couple of days. Um, Embiid still somehow gets slander online and people, oh, you know, it was a, he didn't really deserve MVP. He had a slow couple of, I think, the first two or three games of the season. Sure, he's been on a tear. And it's even better that he's got Tyrese Maxey. It might actually help his scoring that Tyrese Maxey is such a threat that teams can no longer double Joel Embiid. The Pacers tried to in that first game they played earlier this week. They would double Joel Embiid. Tyrese Maxey wide open, and that's how we got to most of his 50 points. Um, but if you 
take the man off and put him back on Tyrese. You can double Tyrese. Joel's able to have a – they've got, like, a, a beautiful two-man game developing. I can't remember if we talked about it last week, so please stop me if you're hearing this for a second time, Yuri. But it's not Jamal Murray and uh, Nikola Jokic levels, but it's it's getting there. I mean, they've played together for X many years already. They've got some innate chemistry, and having Harden away from the team has just thrust this two-man game into the spotlight. Embiid's a willing passer, six assists a game. Tyrese Maxey, I'm not going to call him the quickest player in the league. I think that's De'Aaron Fox, but he might be the second. Like, this two-man game they've been establishing is very fun to watch as well. So um, anything you want to talk about with the Sixers or the Celtics who are just almost unbeatable? Oh, definitely on both sides, Alex. And I think this has really been a great, addition as well for the 76ers in that Harden trade by getting Nick Batum and Robert Covington. Hey, he's Philly not called right. Nick Batum because... anymore. I don't know if you saw this. What? But the team asked him if he was Nick or Nicholas because he's of French descent, oh. and he asked the, 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 he asked the team to call him Nico. So when I watch on League Pass, I watch the Philadelphia stream, they call him Nico Batum, and it, it, it's, a, it's good. I like it. Rightio, so we'll know next time when we have to say his first name, it's not Nick, Nick. it's Nico Batum. So, Nico Batum. No, I think... Yeah, with Philly, right, and in terms of their complementary role players, it's been great because defensively they've been able to switch everything in a way which really cuts out the oppositions in terms of offense and really wanting to exploit in the paint. And they just have no real solidifying of perimeter-based oriented players as well. And both Batum and Covington are excellent wing defenders that can switch, but also at the same time are really lengthy. And that's the real sort of bonus part for the 76ers in that trade for James Harden is to get role players that can really surround Embiid and Maxi and also Kelly Oubre and fingers crossed as well with that recovery too because that was that was just horrifying it's to hear about. story that we're not going to touch yeah. on today. It's no. a very strange story. No, really just, yeah, it's just, it's not great. And I think that's a big part with some of the Philly teams, right? Even like, Back to 2000, 2001, Alex. Remember with like Alan Iverson, how coach Larry Brown wanted to surround him with complimentary role players like Aaron McKee and Eric Snow and then bring you, of course, to Kembe Mutombo in that trade for Theo Ratliff because I think Ratliff had like a season-ending wrist, wrist injury or something now at the top of my head. But they had those real just blue-collar glue guys as well. They will just do all the spade work and really dive for those 50-50 loose balls. And I think that's the real resemblance. And that's why I think 76ers fans really gravitate towards anyway because it's a hard-working city. And if a player embraces that but also commits to those just intangibles, then they'll immediately be accepted. And that's the big part as well of what the 76ers have done this season. I definitely didn't think after that hardened trade that they'll slide in the way significantly only to like 45, 46 wins. But again, I think just probably with in terms of how the league has been situated now, Alex, and once more we sort of go back to, oh, super teams and you need a big three to win a championship. But now the new CBA agreement, which has been in place starting from this season and we can only basically sign two players to match deals, it does sort of bring back, I think, a fairer competition amongst the teams as well that it's not so lopsided in a way anymore and that you can just build around two stars and then have, again, a surrounding role of complementary players that can really fit into the pu- into the puzzle. And that's what they've done. Maybe bar, of course, the Boston Celtics with 
Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Chris Ups, Paul Zingas, Drew Holiday. The other ones. Boston's yep. probably in a better place than Phoenix. The Phoenix Suns are the opposite of what you've just said. So they do have three max contracts, but everyone else, excuse me, is on minimum one-year deals because of the, the structure of the CBA. They can't. Um, moving from next season, there's another a tranche of new rules coming in, but they won't be able to sign above certain levels and, and salaries get more restrictive. Um, any other teams in the East that pique your interest? I haven't asked you to prep for this, so we'll move from 6 to 15, uh, and I'll just read out the team name, and you give me one or two words, how do you feel about this team, and I'll give one or two words, and if there's something interesting, we can have a discussion, because I want to talk yeah, to Detroit sure, at, at 15. But um, what's your instant reaction to the Orlando Magic at 7 and 5? Yeah, they've been very solid, Alex, too, and I think the defensive principles that Jamal Mosley has brought to the team. It's really paying off this season as well. They're super hard to get by. And I think this is a big thing watching some of their games this season, especially the game against the Bucks last week, is that offensive rebounding, second chance points, and they don't take a lot of threes as well. I think they only average about 30 or 31 three-point attempts per game or something like that. They're definitely bottom 10 from the last time I checked the stats. But it's the points in the paint which they really thrive in and that's where really make a lot of their offensive production. So, no, I've been really pleased by what they've done. And I think both of us thought before the season began they'll take that next step into potentially being a playing team. They have defensively. I think every Orlando game they've held someone over to 100 I've watched. So, um, all right, uh, quick thoughts on the Cleveland Cavaliers at 6-6. Six and six. Yeah, it's been a bit of a, yeah uneven start, I think, for the Cavs as well. They did have some success on the... Latest West Coast trip as well, watching their game against Golden State last week as well, which they won, beat the Portland Trailblazers a couple of days ago. So they're starting to figure it out in a way too. And I think as well, third team going into the season was probably more, again, on the production of taking more three-pointers. That's why I bring Max Struess across on the Miami Heat, and he shoots a volume of threes, about seven or eight per game. It really does take the pressure off of Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, Jared Allen, Evan Mobley, even though Mobley's trying to shoot more corner threes this season. Jared Allen, of course, is a non-three-point shooter anyway. He's more there for the defense and the rim protection. So they're starting to figure it out in some parts as well, the Cavs, but it's it's a real unknown at this stage. I think most of us thought they would really, at this point, even though it's only 12, 13 games in, be like a, in the top four in the East. They stink. I hate them. I hate watching them play. <laughs> I don't know what it is, if it's stylistically or I just... I can't get behind the Cavs. Um, moving on to the Brooklyn Nets, I find them much more entertaining to watch. What's your thoughts? Uh, they're also 6-6. Six and six. Oh, definitely too, Alex. And watching their game on Friday against the Heat, which they'll ride in it until like late in the third quarter. And Jimmy Butler scored the 10 straight points down the stretch and really broke the Nets back too. I think having Nick Claxton back has been – he's an absolutely defensive glue, right? And his – not just production alone, but – his defensive intangibles are so crucial because they're, they're a very small team, though, Alex, when you look at them on paper as well. They play Dorian Finney-Smith at the power forward. Mikhail Bridges, of course, you have Spencer Dinwiddie. Ben Simmons is still out for, was well, been out for the last couple of games with that back injury. So when he does get back in, but I think they, they love to play with pace. And that's like with the Dallas Mavericks too, really push the ball up and down the court as well, really try and get those easy looks inside the first 16 seconds of the shot clock, and that's a real, I think, emphasis that Jack Vaughan wants to bring on that end. And I think, yeah, they're just a very 
It's a very unpredictable team, though, to figure out, though, Alex. That's the thing about the Nets. Like, you look at their teams over the years since they did relocate from New Jersey prior to the 2012-13 season. It was a lot of veteran-laden teams, right? Darren Williams, Joe Johnson era, which was only for basically essentially two seasons alone. Then that infamous trade with the Boston Celtics, bring Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and Jason Terry across. And I think that season thought they would win 55 games and challenge the Miami Heat. And that's the way the team was built that season, right, to dethrone LeBron James, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, which ultimately they weren't able to in the Eastern Conference semifinals, losing five games. And then, of course, they go through that rebuilding phase. Joe Johnson, I think, gets way... I think it's... I think it's a buy-in, actually. It was a buyout with his contract midway throughout 2015-16 season. Darren Williams goes back home to Dallas and plays for the Dallas Mavericks and all that alone. And then they go through that rebuilding phase and accumulate a prize number of first-round picks. And Karis Levert, they're able to get from, I think it was, I can't remember exactly now the top of my head with Karis Levert, but he was a real, not a surprise acquisition but a nice addition and a complimentary role play too. We saw the first, I think, 10 games at 2018-19 season, Alex, where he was playing so well and he had that grotesque leg injury against the Minnesota Timberwolves in mid-November, which ruled him out for the rest of the season. And they were a real up-and-coming young side that season. D'Angelo Russell made his all-star appearance, the only all-star appearance. I think he averaged like 21 points and 7 assists that season. They made us the number 6 seed, lost the 76ers in the first round. And then, of course, we all know that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant deal and that James Harden comes across the following campaign and just really turns to smithereens because they're only able to play 16 games together. So it's a very, to really tie it all up with the Nets as well, it's all been veteran laden, but I think now they know if they're able to just build around Mikhail Bridges and Cameron Johnson and Nick Claxton on the interior as the defensive anchor, then they can produce something, but how far they go, well, we don't know exactly just yet. All right. Our last couple of teams in the Eastern Conference, the Atlanta Hawks at 10, the Toronto Raptors, they're 5-7, and seven, the Bulls are 5-9, and nine, the Charlotte Hornets 3-9, and nine, the Wizards 2-10, and 10, and the Pistons 2-11. and 11. Um, What team out of that collection of garbage interests you? I don't think the Hawks should be down there. The Hawks should be a little higher than 6-6, six and six. Um, but maybe the Raptors, the Bulls, the Hornets, the Wizards, the Pistons. What interests you? I think Chicago, just being able to watch their last three games, Alex, two against Ooh. the Orlando Magic, which, well, they should have won in a way in both games. They'll ride into it in the last minutes as well. And then, unfortunately, just those few breakdowns late as well. Zach Levine hits that crazy three to tie to score. I think it was at 91 at that point as well in the first meeting against Orlando. And then, unfortunately, just the offensive rebounding late for them really just killed them in the end and that's what cost them that first meeting then the second meeting as well they just it's been a real resemblance I think the last three games even though they're able to beat the Miami Heat today Alex is just the shooting has been abysmal at times they only had yeah. 33 first half points against Orlando yesterday and then today yeah. against Miami I think it was 40 first half points so there's issues on that end too and I think they're not a sort of terms of a high-volume three-point shooting team and haven't been that way since Billy Donovan took over. It's all no. been bottom five. So that changed today against the Miami Heat. I think they attempted about 43-pointers out of the top of my head or something. Yeah, I think which is a season high for them this season, which is what? completely <laughs> absurd. I haven't yeah. seen anything from that game yet. Um, no, that's very surprising. I know they beat Heat. Yeah. Let's have a completely absurd. Going, I'll have a quick look. Demar 23, I'll look at the stats. 
Yeah, so, and as well, just the lineup changes they've made this season too, Alex. So, of course, Patrick Williams was the starting power forward and he gets demoted to the bench. Tory Craig starts as the power forward. And guess what? Last couple of games, he's starting off the bench. And DeMar switches to a power forward like what the Bulls did late last season when they had him playing at the fourth spot. So, they're still trying to really juggle a few things out, but well, yeah, they I didn't think they're shoot best. Right? Yeah, thirty five percent from three. They came from twenty one points down, so it must have just been really timely. It, it was, and I think their best lineup moving forward. And Lonzo Ball, of course, we all know he's not playing this season, and it's just it's real sad. It's really sad in a way too, just to see that. His last appearance was January 14, 2022, and just having those chronic knee issues, right, it's just it, – it's too hard to describe and comprehend to the fact that when he was on the court, their plus – well, their offensive and defensive production was so, so good. And when you take him out, it just completely goes down yeah, the gurgle they've, drain. They've and, been holding on to that pipe dream that he'll come back and the yeah. team will work. But, but this – I hate watching the Bulls play. Even last year, you could get away with it. They were not too bad after the All-Star break. They made a little mini push, and every time you would watch, you could go, all right, Levine's going to have 20, DeRoad's going to have 20, Vooch every second or third game will have a really impactful game. But I haven't seen any of that from the Bulls this year, um, and the rumours coming out of Chicago that they're shopping Zach Levine, I think that's 12 months too late. I don't know what you get for him at this point in time. He's on a monster contract that's worth like $200 million over the next four years. So anyone trading for Zach Levine is going to be stuck with monster money. Um, just quickly, worth mentioning, Charlotte Hornets, um, they they can push it. I mean, they're 3-9, and nine and they're not great, but LaMelo Ball, he's a stud. Uh, they've had a lot of fun at the end of games, like losing. I think they lost. Oh, I've watched so many of these games. They're blending in together. They beat the Pacers, um, and LaMelo Ball gets a steal on Tyrese Halliburton. Like, the Hornets... Have been fun to watch um, in stretches. Don't, don't commit to watching the tie game. Watch the 10-minute abridged version. Um, the Washington Wizards have been terrible. Kyle Kuzma has been the only person worth paying attention. A good shooting blitz for Kuz, um, scoring 20-plus a game. And the Detroit Pistons, they've lost 10 in a row. That's the reason why Jack Brophy's not on the show today. He doesn't want to show his face. Um, they're awful, and I, I don't know. If it's coaching, they're playing Kevin Knox. I, I've literally got, he was out of the league for the last three years. I don't know what Detroit's doing. I don't know what Quanti Williams is doing. I get that they're a rebuilding team and we're supposed to give them some equity and some space to figure this out. They haven't looked very good at all. Oh, it's it's very puzzling. Outside of going Thompson, season, sorry, I meant to mention Asaul Thompson. So you go ahead and then we can talk about Asaul. It's extremely puzzling, Alex. Just the way after that two and one starters completely just cascaded and I think the lineup change as well not starting Jaden Ivey has been a real sort of discussion point I think these last couple of weeks as well and about his role and certain reports that he's disgruntled by not getting as many minutes as he did last season I think that's the one thing when it comes to having a young team as well and trying to figure out who's your best starting five combination is that some players are going to get a large amount of minutes, and whilst others' minutes are just going to be significantly reduced, and I think that's going down that way, and that's just a thing in the area that Monty has got to figure out as well because he's probably for the first time since being a head coach, I think, Monty Williams, that he's had a team this young in a way too that he's just has to somehow figure out the minutes and the rotation. Like we've seen Jalen Duran having, 
have a great start to the season as well, especially the game against the Bulls as well. She was just cleaning them up on the offensive glass. But it's in that big man department. We've got so many. We've got Marvin Bagley, Isaiah Stewart, who was playing center before Duran got drafted James last Wiseman. season. Yeah, James <laughs> Wiseman too. But he's only played like, what, two, three games for a combined 15 minutes or something. It's just no it's very, very strange what's going on at this stage. And it's, again, it's hard to really put a finger on everything that's going on at this stage for the Pistons. I just thought they wouldn't be 2-11. It would at least be, no, 4-7, and seven, maybe 5-6 and six or something, just be around close to the fringes of 500. But to be at this point, it's just it's yeah. mind-boggling to say the least, Alex. Cade's not having a great start to the year. Um, shoots 40% from the floor, 29% from three, turns it over five times a game, scores 21 points. So he's been all right. Um, doesn't look like he's going to take a leap in the early part of the season. Um, that's what I worry about when you keep rolling out this terrible team is, is what impact it has on Cade and these other young stars. I saw Thompson, who went fifth in the draft. Um, he's been a bright spot for them. He's could make an all-defensive team this year. He's just a lockdown defender. Averages 10 rebounds, 3.5 assists, and 3 stocks. That's the steals and blocks. Who does that? Um, he can't shoot to save his life, so... They need to get a shooting coach into Detroit. If he becomes a serviceable shooter, then that's – I love watching him play. It, the rookies this year have been good. Jeez, my voice broke. Note to myself, go in and edit that out. The rookies this year have been good outside of Victor Wembanyama and Chet Holmgren. And I saw Thompson has been really good as well. Um, we haven't even gotten to the Western Conference, so there's no point talking about Hawkins for the Pelicans or Marvin, not Marvin Bagley, uh, Derek Lively the second. That's a good segue to get to the Western Conference. Um, do you know who's on top of the Western Conference? Yeah, so Dallas lost today, so they dropped to nine and four. It's Minnesota and Denver at nine That's and correct. three, and both teams are unbeaten at home. That's correct. They're both really, really fun to watch. Denver less so without Jamal Murray for the rest of this month. Hopefully, he's healthy soon. Minnesota looked great. I thought they would improve over last year's experience. We talked at length about missing 50 games with calf injury um, and the friction they have at playing Cap and Rudy Gobert together and then bringing Nas Reed, who's super impactful to the bench as well. Minnesota, Anthony Edwards, unstoppable four moments in time. Cap, every three games, will have a 30-point game performance. Rudy Gobert's gotten back to Defensive Player of the Year um, levels. They have not entered my inner sanctum of championship contenders, but they're knocking on the door. They've got an invitation. They've been really good. Um, your thoughts on the Timberwolves, the Nuggets, or the Dallas Mavericks who lost today, who are 9-4? and four. The Mavs have looked really good as well, actually. Yeah, I definitely think with the Minnesota Timberwolves, watched a fair bit of their games, the one against Boston a couple of weeks ago, which they won in overtime. And that's the whole real predication of defense that Chris Finch has really implemented. He spoke about in the lead-up, I think with a mini post, I think, or the athletic out of the top of my head. can't remember which one of the two outlets he spoke to, but he did mention about the defense and how they had to change some of their structures as well, especially to accommodate Rudy Gobert and play to his strengths, and that's exactly what they've done this season. And I think we talked about their win-loss total right before the start of the season. Alex. I didn't win in close to 50 games. Yeah. Like, it's very close to 50 games barring health, and health, of course, is the number one thing when it comes to the NBA. If you can stay healthy, then you're every chance, and if you don't go into this tailspin of losing five, six games in a row, then that always helps. So they've really cleaned up on that end, and they're 
always had the capabilities to be a very solid defensive team. And that's what I think Chris Finch was already well known for too during his time as assistant with the Pelicans, as assistant with the Toronto Raptors. He already had that pedigree of as a defensive coach and it's really rubbed across this season too. And even today, them being, well, I think it was 15 points down late in the third quarter against the Pelicans at one point and they were able to fight back and Carl Anthony Towns had a great game, 29 points and I think nine rebounds or something. Anthony Edwards... Even though I think at various times it was a little bit cold, but he ended up finishing, I think, with 23 points and they were able to pick, pick the Pelicans. And that's the really big part as well with the Timberwolves. And probably, I don't know why. I think with both of us, we've just, there's a fascination with this team. I, I don't know exactly what it is with Minnesota. Maybe is it the lack of success or is it maybe just the roster and their starting five? It's 100% the roster. When I look at this team, I look at like three guys who should hate each other. And they're making it work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but then you bring Mike Conley across from that trade with the Utah Jazz and just having that steady point guard who's had so much synergy with Rudy Gobert during their time with the Jazz, that always helps, right? We can run those lob plays, even though they do it at various points, not with regularity, but just provides just that extra different dimension within the offense. And we talked about the spacing with Cats and Gobert and that, so far through 12 games has completely, completely looked extremely good compared to last season, right? Where I think both of them were trying to get in each other's way. And I think Finch has figured that out, that if you leave Cat either on the left or right-hand corner or either at the top, then have Gobert basically in a dunker spot in a way, just in case there's a action run between Conley and Towns for a pick and pop, and Guy Bear's there in the dunker spot waiting for the offensive rebound or something like that. So they've definitely got that floor spacing right too. And just the whole, I think, different lineup switches they can have as well. They can play Carl Anderson at the four, which they've done with a Guy Bear with a Towns. They haven't really done it too much with Nas Reed from memory as well with their different lineup combinations, but that's really helped. Even though Carl's not a three-point shooter, he's not a three-point threat, but he just provides all those, again, the intangibles, like with so many role players that just do it every single time, and that's exactly what he does. And as with the Denver Nuggets too, Alex, and there was one thing before, I think Bruce Brown spoke about it after them winning the championship, that out of the whole, I think, sides that they played en route, the Minnesota Timberwolves, their first-round matchup last postseason was the toughest that to play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what it looks like it might be at the end of this year in the Western Conference. I'm just the first loss, which would be, I want to see that matchup. Um, outside the top three, we've got Oklahoma City Thunder at four. I do want to pause to talk about them. The Kings at five and the Rockets at six. And we can get to everything else in a second. I had Chet Holmgren as my rookie of the year, and I look like a genius. Um, he had an amazing performance today against the Warriors. He ended up with, uh, let me get the stats back up, 36-10-5. and five. Again, this dude's a rookie. Um, he's super impactful defensively. Um, obviously, Shade Gilders Alexander, I think I also had as my pick for MVP. And I'm not saying I'm a super genius, but this team is the one team I will watch every game they play. I love watching the Thunder play. They're so interesting for so many reasons. I think Mark Daniels done a great job with the interesting pieces they've got. Shout out to their other rookie, Case and Wallace, who's defensively just a pest. Um, Josh Giddy can have it going, just having his length and his passing vision opens up the floor for everything else. 
Lugan stored is still defensively. It can give you 30 on any given night. Uh, Jalen Williams keeps improving. Um, 30 seconds on the Thunder because we're starting to run out of time because we love these teams too much. But I want to know your thoughts on the Thunder and if they should be as high as fourth uh, for the rest of the season because my thoughts is I think they can be that high. I think it can be a 4-5 or five seed, definitely, Alex. And you've nailed everything on the head with the Thunder. And there's a resemblance, right, to when a young Kevin Durant, James Harden, Russell Westbrook were coming up and it was the 0-9-10 season. They made you the left out Serge Ibaka. Don't leave out Serge Ibaka. Yeah, oh, Serge, sorry. Go give love to Serge too. 50 wins that season. Tavo Sevalosha. Yes, Tavo too. And I think Kevin Martin was on that team. Yeah, or he was. I think it was part of the Rockets trade as well in the 2012, prior to the 2012-13 season. But that's what the real sort of correlation slash similarities are with this team now and the team all those years ago that they have tremendous length on both ends of the floor. They can score in spades. There's no doubt about it too. And just I think teams are finding it very difficult to really penetrate in the lane with them because they can switch so much and that's the luxury when you have guys who are 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", but with long, lanky arms. It just makes it so hard to orchestrate any clean offensive plays, and that's what they've really, really just taken that next step forward to, Alex. And even just watching Friday's game against Golden State, and that was on full show, just what they're able to do and just completely cut apart the Warriors and do it once more today, even though it went to overtime. They're just, like you said, they're super exciting. Um, the Kings have been good, better since De'Aaron Fox has returned from an ankle injury. The Houston Rockets have also been very good. I don't think they'll stay at uh, six. They're six and four currently. Um, we've spoken about Alper and Shangun getting better. Um, interesting fit, good coaching. The Los Angeles Lakers, I haven't enjoyed watching this year at seven and six. And the Suns, who have been without their big three consistently, we heard in the media that they were going to play, I think, two days ago, and then uh, Bradley Beal didn't play. They're six and six. Uh, pick one of those teams, the Kings, the Rockets, the Lakers, Suns. What do you want to talk about there? Yeah, definitely the Kings, I think, too, Alex. They've, after that two and four star, which the Rockets just dismantled them on both occasions, right? And I think one of the games really drew the eye of Mike Brown. It was after, I think, that 30-point 30, 30 loss, which they completely just got annihilated. He basically just, yeah, took aim at the players, right, and said it was just wasn't good enough. It was deplorable. And he also gave full kudos to Ime Doke and what he's done thus far with the Houston Rockets this season. And they've still, I think, defensively, they've still got some ironing out in the way too, I think, yeah. the Kings. And we saw that against the Lakers when they had a 20-point lead and then it completely got, well, not completely got raised, but the Lakers were within touching distance and they're able to re-steady. And I think the good part as well with what they've got already Everyone knows with the DeMarcus Sabonis pick and roll combination, De'Aaron Fox. But at times, it's his combination with Kevin Herter where you'll see the top of the key, he'll have the ball, but then what he'll do, right, is he'll almost do like a bounce pass through his legs to Kevin Herter, just like one of those normal bounce passes. And, and Kevin will just fly around the screen, catch it, and just let fly. And that's what has been really interesting to watch is Sabonis' passing at the top of the key to anyone. Even Malik Monk can get around a couple of screens right and catch five from deep. But the Kevin Herter mix, that complimentary mix has been really fascinating. And something over the last, probably this week as well, watching the Kings and how they've run those offensive plays. Because Mike Brown 
I think he ran more of a Princeton offense when he was his short stint at the Lakers. And it's sort of, I wouldn't say similar in a way too, because as the Princeton, the Princeton offense normally consists of five guys touching the ball and sort of making plays in the way and really it's almost like that 0.5 second offense if you want to look at it in that regard. So I think the other part to it as well, the Kings and the turnaround too, Malik Monk's facilitating Alex. I think mm. he has gone from more than just, oh, catch and shoot, jack up six, seven threes a game to a guy that, oh, when Darren Fox doesn't have the ball and – just reducing the facilitating pressure off De'Aaron, having Malik Monk run a play. So say like a high pick and roll with Sabonis and Sabonis runs basically rim rolls to the basket. That's a particular play they've done exceptionally well this season. Even some like a hockey hockey assist, even though we probably haven't seen many of those, but just those whip-out passes to the corner. He's, his vision and his playmaking has gotten so much better and that's what's really help the Kings steady, and I think they've really got the other pieces going nice. I think Sasha Vachenkov as well has been a nice glue piece as well too, and his three-point shooting's been very elite, even though he, he's had a time at the start of this season where his minutes have been a bit sporadic, but they're very, again, they're a fun team to watch, and the one thing that's going to really come down to it for the Kings is defense, just like all those years ago, right, when Rick Adelman took over, they had to make those Defensive corrections, right? And that's why they bought in a Duck Christie. That's why they bought in a Bobby Jackson. And that's why I helped them basically become a championship contender such a long time ago. And I think they've definitely have got the glue to become that as long as they're consistently defending. Because if they can do that, then anything can happen. We're going to speed run through the last couple of teams and get to our performances of the week. The Phoenix Suns, I don't want to touch until I see the big three all play. Uh, Bradley Beal still dealing with back injury, I think it is. Uh, the Golden State, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so Bradley Beal, Alex, he's out of his, so far since he was drafted out of 2012, he's had two seasons where he's played all 82 games. And that was 2016-17, no, sorry, not 2016-17, 2017-18 and 2018-19. He's played all 82 games in one season. Then there was that 2015-16 season, which he played only 55 games. I think don't think it was a back injury. Can't remember exactly what he was going through at that time with an injury. But yeah, he's just unfortunately even last season the Wizards. I think he only played 50 games, and it's it's tough, man. Especially where he's only played three games so far this season. And back injuries are oh, they're they're super hard. They're it almost reminds me of why Dwight Howard, even though he's recovery was absolutely remarkable, right? He underwent surgery, I think, in April of 2012, and he was back on the court within six months, and he was back rehabbing within, like, three or four months. Was, yeah, but as a Lakers but, fan, he probably shouldn't have been on the court because at times he was a turnstile in that 2012 oh, season. And there was one other thing, too, I think, in one of the articles, and Meta Well Peace, a former teammate of his at the Lakers, spoke about there was a particular with his back injury, and he – during the surgery, right, they pulled out – it was almost like this elongated piece of chicken fat. It was so long. And, like, because of the amount of pressure within the hernia in his back that caused so much pain to run through, and they had to pull that out. And he, he said, when when I look at that, I'll, I'll take back all the things I said. It's just, yeah, back back injuries, just to really summarise it, just they're, they're painful to say the least. And 
for him, that season alone, Dwight, back in 2012, 13, I think he played 76 games in the regular season, which is more remarkable. I think six he missed because of he had a Lambrum injury. I think he twice re-aggravated the shoulder. So talk about durability. Yeah, uh, the Warriors on a six-game losing streak. I said preseason I'd worry about them wasting one of Steph's last great seasons. Steph's been MVP candidate, Steph, when he's been playing. Uh, Clay has been no good. Wiggins having a terrible start to the season. Uh, rookie Brandon Pajemski has been fun to watch for the Warriors a uh, couple of high-scoring games. So, yeah. Uh, the New Orleans Pelicans, I can't tell. At times, they look like they're a really fun team. Today, they had no Zion Williamson. Uh, they give up a big lead to the Timberwolves. Brendan Ingram still had a chance to win it at the death, so um, maybe I just need to watch a little bit more Pels games. Clippers, I don't want to see for another 10 games. Uh, I don't care about them. The Utah Jazz, they're not a team that should be any good. Uh, they're 4-8 and eight down at 12, and then we've got the Grizzlies, the Blazers, and the Spurs. Uh, the Grizzlies holding on for dear life at 3-9. and nine. Um, They've still got, what, 13 games till Jar can come back. Portland Trailblazers, six-game losing streak. They're not very good. Um, Jeremy Grant's been okay for them, like efficient, like 25-plus point games on the regular. And the Spurs down in the bottom, um, which I didn't have picked at all. They're 3-10 and 10 following today's loss. Um, eight losses in a row, and I think in every one of my season-long multis, I had them winning more than 27 games. So I'm in a bit of strife in the Spurs. Pick one of those teams to talk briefly about, and then we'll talk about our performances the week before. Yeah, it's sort of bit hard to get a finger around the Spurs too because I think they started 5-2 and two last season and then the wheels really dropped off and hopefully it just doesn't resemble much further with the Spurs because I think one part within their offense is Keldon Johnson. Don't know why. If they just stopped sort of going to him in late in games as well in yeah, the last 2-3 minutes, yeah. it's really I, peculiar. I think they're trying they're to get that. the ball in the hands of the young guys. To give, and like Keldon Johnson's not an old guy. He's, I mean, I'm guessing he's probably 24 years old. But they've got enough interesting pieces where I think this is almost a deliberate ploy that they don't need to win this year. That's why they're doing the Jeremy so hard at point guard thing, even though he's probably a four in the next couple of years. Um, yeah, funny team. I thought yeah, they'd be a little strange. bit better. I think Chet Holmgren is really giving Victor Wembanyama a run for his money. The difference between Wemby and Chet, because I've, I've watched a lot of both of them, I'd be interesting to hear your thoughts as well, is... Um, Wemby doesn't seem to play with a rhythm in his game, and he forces some terrible shots, particularly from deep. Um, his efficiency is not that great. Chet Holmgren, buckets when it matters. He will be completely open. If he's slightly outside his range, he doesn't shoot it. He uses height for a cut to Giddy or to Jet. He seems to be a bit more reserved, and you can see that he's shooting, I think, last week. It was like 55% from three because he doesn't take all that many of them. Um Anyway, let's move on because we're running out of time. Uh, I could keep talking for hours about everything. Um, your performance of the week is? Jimmy Butler's 36 points against the Brooklyn Nets. And there were so many choose, cool chosen Tyrese Halliburton's 32 points and zero turnovers, which I think is also a record. It was 33 points, 15 yeah. assists, zero turnovers. Assists. Um, yeah. The other Tyrese, Tyrese Maxey, had 50 points a game prior. Um, Indiana and Philly had a fun two-game series. Uh, Giannis had 40 today. He had 40, 14, and 7 um, and didn't miss in the fourth quarter for 15 points. Donovan Mitchell had 34 against the Blazers, although when I watched that, again, I don't know why I hate watching the Cavs play. Um, someone help me. Isaiah Joe was my performance of the week. He went 7 of 7 from 3 for 23 points in OKC's win against uh, Golden State a couple of days ago. He did miss 
the eighth three-point attempt, but he got fouled, so it doesn't show up against the box score. But the commentators were going mad. I say Joe, shooting seven for seven from three. Um, Tatum had a nice 29, eight, six, and two steal in a win against Phillies. Um, Kevin Durant, again, 38 points, nine and nine in a win over the Jazz. KD, at 35 years old, averaging 30 points a game, um, third in the league at scoring. Oh, and that is everything yeah. from the first month That's of the NBA. Nice. <laughs> That's, That's really nice still, Alex. Because I think Durant's averaging like 36.3 minutes per game or something this season. It's definitely 36. It's, it's 36, and I don't know this hunch. I think he's played every game. I'm, I don't think he's missed a game yet. Um, they've no. had to have someone play between Devin Booker and Bradley Beal's injuries. All right, uh, Yuri, we'll leave it there. Um, have you got any articles? Are you writing anything this week? Where can we find you? Yeah, so wrote a couple this week as well, Alex, and one that you probably saw was Australia-South Africa, which the World Cup semi-final tonight, did transpire right? on Thursday night. Yeah, the finals tonight yeah, yeah. between Australia and India, which it's a revisit back to 2003, 20 years on from the World Cup final back in, I think it was Cape Town or just trying, no, I don't think it was Cape Town. The, the, the venues disappeared out of my head now, exactly where that World Cup final was. It was definitely in South Africa. And the other one I did was the NBL round seven, Actually, talking points in a way too, just from the round gone by. It's round eight, and after this, they've got the FIBA break and basically conjured something up as well. And also did an interview with one of the Melbourne United assistant coaches as well, Jacob, Jacob Chan. So just got to transcribe and put that Very interview exciting. up Keep for the Inner Sanctum. It was a great chat as well. He's so articulately well-spoken and his wealth of knowledge for his age, right, his experience is well beyond his years and he just – He's such a great communicator. He's going He's going to go on and do exceptional things, and he'll become a head coach sooner and later, Alex. All right. Well, thanks, Yuri. Uh, we'll be back here this time next week to talk about everything that happened in week five. Uh, that's it from Yuri. Thanks. Cheers, Alex.